1: I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about a family and how cancer can become the glue that bonds. At the root of our story today is a genetic mutation, a tiny little change in a line of chromosomal information only discovered upon a breast cancer diagnosis, but easily seen winding through a family tree in retrospect. I remember when I was diagnosed and an appointment was made for me to meet with a genetic counselor almost as swiftly as appointments were made for me to meet with my team of oncologists. I was happy to meet with the genetic counselor because unlike the doctors tasked to clean up the cancer mess, the counselor and genetic scientists would be the detectives. They would be the ones to fill in the big answer to the question why. If this were a crime scene and didn't it really feel like one, then the genetic counselor could provide the motive. Why did cancer happen to me? was the question that kept banging around in my head at night. It felt like having a smoking gun genetic mutation would be a way to point the blame away from myself. I was questioning every life decision I had made up until that fateful day I felt the lump, wondering what I had done wrong along the way to deliver cancer karma to my doorstep. Was it those clove cigarettes I smoked guiltily in college? I knew in my heart it couldn't be, but the vague, sometimes bad things just happen was equally as terrifying. Despite those clove cigarettes haunting me from the past, and saying it now I can almost taste them in my mouth, ugh. Despite all those illicit cigarettes smoked after class, I had reason to believe I might have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer. I was 18 when my grandmother passed away from metastatic breast cancer. My whole life, that bit of family history, was disregarded as irrelevant, though, since she was my paternal grandmother. Now we're beginning to know differently that genetic links can pass paternally as well as maternally. But nonetheless, my genetic tests then and now only reveal a frustrating dim light. I tested positive for VUS, which stands for Genetic Variant of Unknown Significance. My guest today has a different story. Whitney O'Connor, whom you might recognize as the booby queen, was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Lee from me nee I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Whitney will let me know. But Lee from me nee Syndrome. Having been diagnosed with breast cancer twice, the first time at 30, and then again at 32, this was her smoking gun, her why. But not only did the diagnosis of this syndrome provide the hint of motive in A Cancer Mystery, it also gave Whitney a built-in support system because the gene and its ramifications ran in her family. Today, Whitney's here to read a piece she wrote for Wildfire Magazine's Family Issue. This was an issue in which we explored how our breast cancer affects our families And in some cases, such as Whitney's, how cancer has left a mark in the overall family narrative. This is the story of one woman learning not to ask why me or how are we weaker because of our genetic history, but rather, how can this gene's legacy make me and my family stronger than ever? Welcome to The Burn, Whitney. Thank you, April. I'm so glad you're here. Me too. I love your beautiful intro there. Oh, thanks so much. (laughs) So, Whitney, you're reading a piece you wrote called The Cancer Gene, and after you read, we're going to talk about finding community, caregiving as a family skill set, and more. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Whitney. All right, Whitney, I'll let you take it away.
0: Okay. The Cancer Gene.
1: Me. I think I want that one.
0: Genetic Counselor. Wait, that one? No, 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 no. You don't want that one. Me. Why not? Genetic counselor. It's known as the cancer gene. It was quite confusing for everyone, mostly me, to grasp the fact that I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at 30 years old. This is why I had to see a genetic counselor and get tested. Before getting my results back, I automatically assumed that I had the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene because that's what I saw referenced the most in the waiting room magazines and posters on the wall while I was changing into a gown at the girl doctor. I heard about celebrities having mastectomies as a precaution because they had this very gene. So at first, it seemed safer to have any other gene than those, or so I thought. The genetic counselor handed me a folder with lee fermini syndrome written on it, the more I Googled Li-Fraumeni syndrome, the more I realized that I did not want this gene. Long story short, when our cells reproduce themselves, sometimes they make bad copies. For normal people, their P53 gene comes in to correct these mistakes, kind of like a copy machine repair man. The whole job of the P53 gene is to suppress tumor growth. But for people with Lefermini syndrome, the P53 gene is not working. Then these bad cells do bad things, like cause cancer. This meant that my life was going to be different from what I thought. Mortality and wondering how many times I was going to get cancer was suddenly all I thought about. But where did it come from? My family? My dad, maybe? This made sense to me because in 2015, my father passed away from a glioblastoma. Anyone who has heard about this type of brain tumor knows that it's not a good one. This type of brain tumor automatically gets put in the stage four category. I never thought that I'd be helping my parents make life and death decisions at 27 years old. I mean, I just started adulting myself. The pressure of managing dad's treatments and well being was a taxing and emotional endeavor, but we rose to the occasion as a family. My mother, brother, husband, and sister-in-law mastered the art of caretaking. We made a decision that we would all be transparent and have regular family meetings. mineralite was always a part of these meetings. Yes, it's gross, but it was my dad's favorite. From appointments to treatments to diet to lifting, transitioning to showering to toileting, we did it all. Over time that brain tumor turned him into a mute, confused child. You know that saying that it takes a village to raise a child? It takes a village to help someone die comfortably and gracefully, too. We tried our best to turn his sad eyes into happy ones, no matter how exhausted we were. After 18 months of chemotherapy, radiation, and clinical trials, my dad left the earth at 56. One thing I'm sure of is this. He would be proud of the family he left behind. We'll never know if my father had Leifermini syndrome, but at this point, I think he did. Cancer usually manifests itself in mostly soft tissue sarcomas in folks who have this disorder. Looking back, taking care of my dad through his treatment and death was like a crucible for me. Through the exhaustion, anxiety, and overwhelm, who knew that helping my father take take on cancer forged a skill set we all may rely on time and time again. Fast forward two years later, and then it was my turn. It was my turn to be the patient. After finding out we had to do this whole cancer thing all over again as a family, my husband and I took a deep dive into my family tree. We used Ancestry.com and began interviewing relatives that might know more details about our health history. We became genetic detectives in a sense. To say that I wished, prayed, and hoped that this terrible genetic condition stopped with me is an understatement. I would gladly put every penny I had into every wishing wall on earth in order to never have to see any of my family go through cancer again. It's a 50-50 shot for this gene to be passed down and I wanted it to stop with me but it didn't. After we started to uncover more health history with my father's side of the family, my brother was encouraged to get tested. Ironically, I was more upset about him testing positive than myself. I was okay with getting bad news every now and then, but not him. I'd rather go through chemo treatment 10 more times if it meant that he didn't have to deal with it too, but he does. My brother has always worn a cape in my eyes. As kids, I found myself admiring him more than actual adults in my world. He was my hero. There was always this mystique about him. Probably because he wasn't as loud as me. As a young boy, he was quiet and thoughtful, yet outgoing. Most of the time, I wondered if he truly liked me. I mean, he had to love me because my parents told him to. I followed him everywhere and tried hard to impress him regularly. I did what I needed to do to hang out with him. Did I actually like Hot Wheels? No. I liked playing with him with Hot Wheels. Did I actually like playing Mario Kart only to get beat nine times out of ten? No. It was devastating. Heartbreaking even. But I didn't care. As long as I was connecting with him in some way, I was happy. Over the years, I watched my brother become a husband, father, and a man of principle. When my dad got sick, he climbed into the foxhole with me. While bombs were going off all around us, his calmness and strength kept us alive. It was nothing short of heroic. So, two years later, when I had to choose someone to walk me down the aisle on my wedding day, I chose my hero. I wasn't sure what kind of emotional response I was going to have on this big day. Brad's usually get to have their daddies walk them down the aisle, but I had to substitute. When the time came to walk, I started shaking. My makeup started to sweat and all of a sudden needed to pee as I waited for doors to open up to my new life. Michael leans over and says, you look beautiful. But hey, Georgia Tech came back and beat Kentucky. It was crazy. Seriously, Michael? Football? Right now? It was exactly what I needed. I later realized that it was the very thing Dad would have said to me. I no longer felt like I had to pee on myself. Sometimes that is what real heroes do. They break the tension and make you laugh when life overwhelms you. They remind you you're still just kids playing in a sandbox. So you can see why his diagnosis was so difficult for me. It only felt like it was my fault. I felt guilty that our family had to deal with this. It took me over a year to understand that our genes are not anyone's fault. If anything, him knowing about what he has will help him be proactive and preventative. He'll have to have screenings and scans regularly, just like me. I've realized through this journey that everyone has their own burdens that they have to carry. My burden that I'm carrying is cancer. This burden used to create shadows in my mind and didn't allow me to see what could make me happy again. I don't have too many terrible stories to tell outside of this one, the cancer one. And what sucks is the fact that we may find ourselves in the foxhole more than once and relive this cancer story over and over again because of our genetic disorder. As depressing as that sounds, this is a reality for me and my hero. But happiness in life is all about perspective. To think that life would be a straight line without any zigs or zags is not realistic and even irresponsible in a way. Nowadays, I choose to create my own silver lining. I choose not to live in fear of what the next game will say and allow cancer to steal time from me. Life really is a bunch of zigs and zags. Maybe we should be facing our mortality more than we do. It seems unfair to be a cancer family, but it has occurred to me that while some people get more years than others on this earth, we all get the same thing in the end. We all get a lifetime, and I would not for one second trade my lifetime with anyone else's. Having my family, my hero, my husband to face this crazy world with is worth it all. I won't go as far as to say this genetic disorder is a gift, but what it has done is it has made us love harder, forgive quicker, and celebrate more. So that's what I'm going to do. If you need me, you can find me celebrating life with my hero.
1: Love harder, forgive quicker, celebrate more. Whitney, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful story. We're gonna take a quick break here. And when we come back, Whitney and I are going to chat more about Lee Framini syndrome, the Bonda family, and writing through it all. Only in Wildfire do I find stories, poems, uh, and pieces that I can completely relate to or also find very interesting and compelling. It's um, stories from people who are like me. They know what it's like to look a certain way and society looks at us a certain way and yet they don't know what's actually going on with our bodies, our brains, and even our sex lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for the love, Mary. All right. Welcome back, Whitney. I am so excited to talk with you about storytelling and all the good stuff. Welcome. Welcome again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So let's jump in. I have been thinking a lot about identity lately. And mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were sharing your story about how as we receive these different diagnoses, we we have this opportunity to either accept them as kind of the fabric of who we are. And I'm curious for you with the Lee Fermini syndrome diagnosis, have you taken that on as a part of your identity or what what where does it sit with you these days?
0: That's a great question. And I, it, it took me a minute to accept it as part of my identity. Um, I repressed it and resisted it mainly for meaning to not get along. Probably still don't get along. However, at this point, it's one of those things where embracing it, embracing the chaos of it all um, is more healing for me than to
1: try to resist it any longer. Sure. That makes sense. What about finding others with the same diagnosis? Has that been important to you?
0: Yes, that has been important to me. And it has been so fun and interesting to get to know people that have this genetic disorder. And I've mainly found them online, um, in all different parts of the world. Um, you know, the U S, uh, Australia, the UK, um, Spain. So it's been really fun to get in touch with this
1: community that is so rare, but in my eyes seems so big. So what does that feel like when you find each other? What has that done for you?
0: Man, it has, it has made me feel less alone. Um, it's made, it, it's kind of created some relief to be honest, um, because connecting with other Lee or folks, it, it's a, it's, it's a special bond. I, I have a Lee for Meany buddy that we text each other every time we go to scans together. And it's like, hey, got my full body MRI today. And she's like, yep, me too. Um, this really sucks. I'm like, yep, sure does. How's the dog? You know, and just having that person that truly, truly gets it and can share in the annoyance and the inconvenience, but also the anxiety of it all
1: is really, really helpful. Oh, my goodness. Of course. Well, and you have that with your brother as well. So let's talk a little bit about family. I love your story for just illustrating that tight bond that that you guys all had first through your dad's um, decline and then through your cancer and then through um, him discovering, you know, that he had this as well. So. One of the things you said, um, and I love your mention of Miller Lite, by the way, and, you know, (laughs) honoring dad in that way. It's the little things, you know, it really is. Um, But you said, you know, it takes a village to help someone die comfortably. And I thought that was so poignant. I loved that. Can you just say a little bit more about what what you learned from that about pulling together and helping someone? I think if someone hasn't been through it, it, it's. you don't necessarily realize there's work to dying gracefully um, or or that you need help with that.
0: Yeah. You know, the first thing that started to go with my dad was um, his physical abilities. So at such a young age at, I mean, this all started when he was 54 at such a young age, and my, my dad was a, a little bit of a stubborn man, just like his daughter. <laughs> so he wasn't the easiest patient, just like his daughter, Um, when we were taking care of him. And so, you know, breaking through those walls and and allowing him and creating that space to be messy, to fall, to um rely on us it, that was very difficult for him yeah trust and me. yes mm-hmm. yes trust and and so being able to create that space where he could do those things comfortably and us look at him with love and patience and say you know what dad i got it no problem you know i got this mess it's not a big deal and mm-hmm. tag teaming you know, having my brother come in and, um, you know, relieving my mom so that she can go rest or having my sister-in-law help plan something or, you know, so all of those things were required for us to, to have the energy to even help him Mm -hmm. because it was so exhausting.
1: Exactly. Well, it's like literally exhausting to do those things, but also exhausting to hold space for someone who is going through that tra- transition also. Yeah, yeah. And and honestly, April, one thing that we did at our family meeting was, okay, what are
0: you good at? What are you good at? What are you good at? Okay, so everybody's got their job. Everybody's got their role that they're good at. Let Let's do that. And see how that goes. And, you know, we'll go from there and have we honestly had regular family meetings and we would kind of process what was happening. Um, and those weren't easy, you know, and um but that's what had to be done yeah. with Miller Light. With Miller Light.
1: Yes. Well, I love that because hopefully that also helped you guys transition to the the part that comes after, which is so hard for families. Yeah. Um, so I'm just glad that you had that and that you also, the way you wrote it in this piece really took us in there. I love how you broke it down into the scenes and showed us, you know, starting with the dialogue at the beginning of your piece, um, you know, with the genetic counselor. And then this scene, you know, with your um, family meeting later with your wedding scene, like you really helped us to drop into the story and and see it through your eyes. I always teach that in my writing workshops to write in scenes. It helps us also to just okay, I'm going to tackle this one part, you know, of my story. Um, so I I just want to like say th- thank you for writing it in that way. It was so beautifully done. But I wonder, was it also did it help you understand your story and make sense of it as you broke it down? And you, we get to time travel a little bit with writing. So you got to go back and slow it way down and look around. How was that process for you?
0: Yeah, it, um, it, that's exactly what it did. It, it helped me reflect, but also look at different places of my life where, um, I had to have different roles, you know. I was a daughter, then a wife, then a sister, and I'm all of those things, you know. Anyway, but those roles had different duties in a in a sense, and I noticed that as I was writing the the story. Um, so really tapping into that, and you know. Being a daughter and then all of a sudden taking care of your dad, you had to, I I couldn't be his kid during that time. Like, I had to be an adult. I had to Mm -hmm. be his grown-up companion because, you know, the kid Whitney may not have been able to do some of those things. Um, So... It was transitioning those different roles too. Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, and I love what you said later too, though. That at the end of the day, we are all just kids in the sandbox and have to have to keep making sense of it all. Right? Gosh, yes. yes. <laughs> So, Whitney, okay, before before our time is up here, so you know firsthand, obviously, we've seen through our conversation, your story, you know firsthand the brutality of of cancer land. You've been diagnosed twice. You've watched others, you know, deal with this thing. Um, But you've stayed. You've decided to stay and work in cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about the Booby Queen Company and why you've decided to stay?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, when I decided to stay here, uh, I was approached by my husband as well as my therapist, um who, you know, really wanted to make sure that this was a healthy choice for me because I was still processing my own journey and my own cancer. Um, and I started this business literally in in between the two
1: diagnoses. Oh, okay. I thought it came after. Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah. In between the two diagnoses. So after the first one going, um, well, yeah, after the first one in 2017 and then going through that process with my booby crowns, um, and, you know, having the business and then having the second round of, of, cancer to do. Um, but in between then I had this idea where I w- felt like there were other booby queens out there, um, that deserved to wear brawls on their head as well. And so I came up with this product, um, where I make a crown out of a brawl and I call it a booby crown. And it is something that you wear on your head. You can wear it any time you want to, um, but I wore it to appointments. I wore it to walks. I wore it to celebrations. I wore it um, during chemo treatment sometimes um, to doctor's appointments. And the reason why I did that um, was to help remind myself of what's true. I think as cancer patient patients, we forget what's true and we lose ourselves in the physical um, effects and the mental effects and, you know, we create this story of I'm this cancer patient and, you know, I'm weak and I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do this. And for me, it was like, how can I, how can I ignite my inner queen? How can I forget what that story is and create a new story or realize what's actually true? Mm -hmm. And so the Booby Queen Company is all about helping women celebrate themselves as they are. Um, And that has been a huge journey for me is so figuring out and learning how to celebrate me as me, along with all the roles that I have. I did play a role of a cancer patient and a daughter and a wife, all those things. So um, that's what I do through the Booby Queen Company. It's a nonprofit business. And we're starting to do retreats and, um, starting to, um, help survivors, uh, adjust to survivorship and support groups. And, um, yeah, got lots of fun things in store for the Booby Queen company. (laughs) Yay.
1: Yay for all of that. Well, and I love what you said here about, you know, you have questions and choices to make about identity, you know, as we take on this new role of, of, you know, quote unquote, cancer survivor, like, you know, what does that mean? And I love what you said about not losing track of the truth of who you are. And I mean, you're putting underwear in your head. So I feel like your dad is still here, like saying like, Whitney, like make him laugh. Like this is what we need to do to be a true leader, right?
0: Oh my gosh. And you know, April, is so funny. Like I, I just know. Me and my dad are very similar, and I just know if he was here, he would be, like, my vice president. Like, he would be so on board with this idea. Um, It it would just speak to him, for sure, because he was definitely a a jokester as well and um, tried to make things light and and all of that. Um, So, yeah, he would have been on board with the boobs on. Boop! Brawls on head.
1: (laughs) And boobs, right? Boobs, bras, all of it. Let's put it all on our heads, right? Uh, Well, thank you so much, Whitney. Today's writer and guest was Whitney O'Connor. Her piece was called The Cancer Gene from the December 2020 uh, issue of Wildfire Magazine called Family. At the time of this recording, we do have a few paper copies of this issue still available. And, of course, we have it available to read digitally in our shop and in the archives for the subscribers hey whitney where can people find you online or learn more about you
0: yeah um on instagram i'm booby queen chronicles um on facebook you can look up the booby queen company and you should see me with again a brawl on my head
1: um and my website is boobycrowns.com. perfect and we'll link all of that in the show notes thank you so much I'm April Sternt, and you've been listening to The Burn, The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay till the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Whitney. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 30 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. Finally, here's your writing prompt. The saying goes that when one person has cancer, the whole family has cancer. Has this been true for you? How has the arrival of cancer affected your family? Do you feel stronger or weaker as a family and why? I want you to set your timer for eight minutes, Write Without stopping or editing, there's real magic to keeping your hand moving. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take good care.